This is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. First up, we have Swami on a topic that's usually covered by Andrew Petrosoniak, trauma, of course. Thank you, Petro, for being cool with Swami doing some trauma stuff. He's going to run through five quick tips and tricks to make your trauma management a bit smoother. During a recent shift I worked, we had maybe a dozen trauma activations for everything from stab wounds to MVCs to gunshot wounds to falls. We had a fantastic trauma team on that night, as well as an amazing set of EM residents and faculty, and we were really put to the test in managing all of these patients. During the course of the night, there were a ton of little tips, tricks, and pitfalls that came up, and I thought I could share those with everybody else. When managing multiple trauma patients with multiple injuries, your team can be spread pretty thin and every second is important. Wasted time is the enemy. One of our patients had a left chest gunshot wound, lost vitals, and needed a thoracotomy. Our trauma team started the left-sided thoracotomy and asked us to place a right-sided chest tube. No big deal, we do this all the time. And I find that putting the tube in isn't the difficult or time-consuming part, It's actually securing the chest tube that takes more time, especially if your hands are getting a little slippery with blood. So I have found a quick and easy way to secure that chest tube using the ET tube holder. You take that holder, you stick it to the chest, and you can secure the chest tube using that device. Now that's a temporary measure. At some point, you're going to have to sew that chest tube in. But when you're moving back and forth between multiple procedures, this is a nice, quick, easy way to secure the tube. And it is very secure. If you trust your ET tube with it, you can trust your chest tube with it. So you take the securing device for your ET tube, attach it to the chest, and then attach the chest tube where you would normally attach your ET tube. Our next patient had a stab wound to the abdomen. The vital signs were stable. The patient was a bit altered from intoxication, and that made the abdominal examination a little tricky. He clearly either needed an X-lap or a CT, but both resources were a bit thin as we were dealing with multiple trauma patients. In fact, the CT scanner was quite backed up. Our initial FAST exam was reported as negative, but one thing I noticed on that FAST exam is that we didn't get a full look at Morrison's pouch. We saw that hepatorenal space and there was no blood, but you really need to get both the subdiaphragmatic space as well as the tip of the liver to truly have a negative FAST. We rescanned, making sure we got both those spaces and found fluid around the tip of the liver, though the rest of the hepatorenal space was negative. Based on this, the trauma team decided to go straight to the operating room and skip CT since there was going to be a delay in getting that done. This similarly applies in the left upper quadrant, not as much finding the tip of the spleen as much as making sure you check that subdiaphragmatic space. This is often where you will see blood first and splenic injuries. It's important for us to remember that you're not going to see a fluid stripe until there's somewhere between 300 and 350 cc's of blood. One way to increase the sensitivity of your fast is to put the patient in Trendelenburg position. Head down means that any fluid in the belly is going to accumulate into those upper portions. You could also do a right lateral DQ, but sometimes that's technically difficult in a trauma patient. Later that night, we had a hypotensive tachycardic patient from an MVC. We got about a five-minute warning on the patient that EMS was bringing them in. One of the first things we did was get a pelvic binder on the bed, so as soon as the patient hits the door, we can transfer them from the gurney 
onto the binder and apply that binder. No rocking the pelvis, no waiting for an x-ray, and no having to reposition the patient to get the pelvic binder into place. Now, we have to remember that the binder actually goes over the greater trochanters. It's typically higher than you think it should be. When the binder is in the right place, you should still be able to access the femoral vessels. The pitfall here is that we didn't get a pelvis film for a little bit while we resuscitated to confirm that that binder had actually reduced the open book pelvic fracture. And when we finally did get the x-ray, we found that we didn't fully reduce it, and that might still be causing some hypotension, causing some oozing and bleeding. With the x-ray in mind, we reapplied the binder, reshot the x-ray, got better hemostasis, and then got the patient off to interventional radiology. So it's great to apply the binder early in these blunt trauma patients who are hypotensive, but always make sure to check your work. Now, speaking of plain films, we had another stab wound later that evening that was transferred from another hospital to us. The patient was hemodynamically stable, but clearly needed to go to the operating room as they had peritoneal signs. There was a chest x-ray performed at the other hospital, and we were told it was normal. On our review, though, the patient had a shoulder dislocation. And often when we get the chest x-ray in trauma, we are focused on the central parts, the lungs, pneumothorax. Maybe we're looking for rib fractures, but pneumo, hemo, that's really the things that we're looking for. Maybe that mediastinum. The bones can get ignored, especially the peripheral bones. It's not a huge deal, but the patient is going to get general anesthesia, and that dislocation might get missed for a number of hours. If you order the x-ray, look at the whole thing. Don't ignore the bones and the joints. A quick before he went to the OR, we wanted to reduce that shoulder. There's lots of different ways to do this. I like taking a nice gradual approach to reduction with almost no sedation at all. But this was one that we didn't want to do slowly. We wanted to get it in quick, get the patient to the OR. So we went with ketamine for a quick procedural sedation, popped it in, and he's off to the OR. While we're packaging, one of the things that runs through our minds is the fact that this patient is going to emerge from that ketamine while they're on their way to the operating room before they get general anesthesia. And this is not a particularly nice place to have the patient emerge, right? They are going under after a trauma. They're not in a good place. They're going to be more likely to have an emergence reaction. You have a couple of options of what you can do to manage that, but you don't want them to emerge in the elevator. So you can give more ketamine and prolong the sedation. That's fine. You could intubate the patient, which is going to happen anyway in the operating room, or you can just give a little benzo. And since the patient was completely hemodynamically stable, we went ahead and gave a little benzo to smooth that wake up. Let's recap a couple of those quick pearls that we just hit on. When hands are short and your attention is needed in multiple places, consider temporarily securing your chest tube with an ET tube holder and switch it out later to a significantly better tying down situation. When doing the fast exam, make sure you see the tip of the liver and the subdiaphragmatic spaces in the right upper and left upper quadrants before calling it negative. When you put a pelvic binder on and do it quick, don't rock the pelvis, but make sure to get a pelvic x-ray to make sure that you have actually reduced that pelvic fracture. If you get a chest x-ray, make sure to look at the whole film. Don't just focus on the lungs, the mediastinum, look at the bones and the joints. And finally, ketamine is a fantastic medication for sedation of the trauma patient who needs a procedure, but they're likely to emerge and have an emergence reaction, and you can smooth that out with a little benzodiazepine. All right, up next, we have a new voice to EM Quick Hits, SREMI researcher and emergency doc at North York General, Rohit Mohindra. He's going to be speaking at the EM Cases Summit, actually, about the use and misuse of clinical decision rules. He's an EBM guru. He's going to be awesome. Actually, Swami will be speaking at the summit as well, and Petro, and Jesse McLaren, and Salim Rizé, who you'll all hear on this podcast. Okay, here's Rohit Mohindra on a cool case he had a couple years back. I won't give it away. I want to talk about toxic megacolon. 
It's not the most common diagnosis to make, but it's an important one not to miss. It does have some common triggers and underlying comorbidities. For example, patients with ulcerative colitis are thought to have an 8% increased risk of developing toxic megacolon. And mortality can approach up to 80% if it's not treated in a timely fashion. Let's look at a case that starts out straightforward but ends up with a diagnosis of toxic megacolon. A 69-year-old male presents with a two-week history of diarrhea. This seems to be triggered by a recent outpatient colonoscopy. As a result of the diarrhea, he was quite weak and called an ambulance to bring him to hospital. In the resuscitation bay, he's a bit hypotensive and tachycardic, and his extremities are cool, but he's maintaining well, and his clinical status seems to improve with some intravenous fluids. His investigations show an elevated white cell count, a new acute kidney injury, a metabolic acidosis, and a new anemia. Given that he seems to stabilize, you go to see some other patients. But a short while later, you're called back to the resuscitation room as his clinical status has worsened significantly. He now has a decreased mental status, worsening clinical signs of shock, and a new distended abdomen. You order a stat CT scan of the abdomen, which shows pancolic circumferential bowel thickening and fat stranding, extending from the cecum to the rectum. The transverse colon is distended greater than 9 centimeters, and a diagnosis of toxic megacolon is made. Surgery is consulted, and they take the patient immediately to the operating room. Toxic megacolon is defined as an acute colonic dilatation of greater than 6 centimeters, involving at least the transverse colon and having signs of systemic illness. The pathophysiology is thought to be a response to an inflammatory insult or injury, which causes defective smooth muscle tissue function and decreased basal pressure in the lumen. Etiologies can include common things like inflammatory bowel disease or C. difficile colitis, or CMV or parasite infections, ischemic colitis, or lymphoma. Because of the increasing incidence of C. difficile, it's thought that the incidence of toxic megacolon has increased as well. Risk factors for toxic megacolon include age greater than 40, history of anticholinergic or narcotic medication use, significant electrolyte abnormalities, barium enemas, or in our patient's case, a recent colonoscopy. The diagnosis can be tricky to make. The symptoms are variable and overlap with other common diseases. As well, symptoms can be masked by medications that patients are taking for their underlying comorbidities, such as steroids for IBD. Symptoms can include abdominal pain, distension, and bloody diarrhea. However, patients are not typically peritonitic on exam, especially early on in the disease. They may have elevated white cell counts, a metabolic acidosis or alkalosis, and there's generally some evidence of electrolyte abnormalities. CT scan of the abdomen is the diagnostic test of choice. Most importantly, it's going to let you know if the patient has an immediate indication for surgery, such as perforation or necrosis. Management is usually treatment of the underlying cause. Intravenous fluids and antibiotics and pressors as needed. Steroids may be indicated, but should only be started after consultation with a specialist. Some of these patients do go on to need surgery. Indications include perforation, necrosis, ischemia, or in our patient's case, development of abdominal compartment syndrome, worsening clinical status, and end organ injury. In summary, toxic megacolon is an uncommon but important diagnosis to remember. 
It has common underlying comorbidities, such as ulcerative colitis or C. diff colitis. The presentation can be variable and often overlaps with other common diseases. The diagnostic test of choice is a CT scan of the abdomen. Management usually involves treating the underlying cause with IV fluids, antibiotics, and sometimes steroids. Surgery should be considered if they have any evidence of perforation or necrosis or clinically worsening status. So as Dr. Mahindran mentioned, this is a tricky diagnosis. Bottom line is the triad of bloody diarrhea, belly pain and distension, and someone with a history of colitis of any kind, especially if they've had a recent colonoscopy, should spark a consideration for toxic megacolon. Next up, we have our very own Jesse McLaren at ECG Cases, who's going to talk a bit about ECG findings and pulmonary embolism. And of course, it's not just about the relatively infrequent S1Q3T3 we all learned about in medical school. What's the use of the ECG in the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism? Med school teaches that S1Q3T3 is synonymous with PE, but we know this is neither sensitive nor specific. PE guidelines, on the other hand, pay very little attention to the ECG. It's an electrocardiogram, after all, not a pulmonogram. The ECG can't detect pulmonary thrombus, like a D-dimer, and can't visualize the pulmonary arteries, like a CT scan. The ECG can be completely normal in PE, and neither the Wells criteria nor the year's algorithm include ECG interpretation as part of the diagnostic pathway. But the ECG still has a role to play, especially in emergency medicine. The ECG is often the very first test that patients undergo in the ED, hours before any blood test or imaging results are available. Along with point-of-care ultrasound, the ECG is part of our initial assessment at the bedside. While neither can see clots in the pulmonary arteries, they can show evidence of the complication, acute right ventricular strain. So what are the ECG signs of RV strain? In terms of heart rate and rhythm, there can be compensatory sinus tachycardia or new onset AFib. In terms of electrical conduction, RV strain can produce new right bundle branch block. In terms of axis, RV dilation shifts the axis towards the right, producing an S wave in lead one or a full right axis deviation. In terms of repolarization changes, the right ventricle is anterior and inferior, so RV ischemia produces primary T-wave inversion in the anterior and inferior leads, a distribution which is uncommon in acute coronary syndrome. The combination of axis shift and inferior ischemia produces the S1Q3T3 pattern. None of these are sensitive or specific for PE, because many PE don't produce RV strain, and RV strain has a differential, including chronic pulmonary hypertension. As with all ECG interpretation, it needs to be put in the context of the patient and in comparison with previous ECGs, if available. But in those with PE, multiple ECG signs of RV strain are associated with a higher mortality rate. These are the highest risk PEs that we see in patients who might deteriorate if they have a delayed diagnosis, delayed treatment, or inappropriate treatment. So ECG findings of acute RV strain at the bedside can influence resuscitation, diagnosis, and impaired treatment. First, do no harm. If patients have syncope from a large PE, aggressive fluid resuscitation can worsen RV strain. If patients have AFib, which is rapid secondary to large PE, rate control can take away their compensatory tachycardia. 
If patients have respiratory distress from a large PE, early intubation can cause hemodynamic collapse. So bedside evidence of acute RV strain can change initial management in the undifferentiated patient. Secondly, ECG signs of RV strain can influence the differential diagnosis. As a previous EM cases podcast explained, a missed PE is rarely a failure of diagnostic strategy. It's more often a failure to consider the diagnosis to begin with. This includes not considering PE in those without rest factors, even though half of PEs have none, not considering PE in hypoxic patients with a past medical history of CHF and COPD who are more likely to have a delayed diagnosis of PE, or not considering PE in patients with chest pain and a positive troponin until after the normal angiogram. The ECG won't prevent all these missed PEs, but if there are new signs of RV strain, it can help to prevent premature closure and alert us to at least consider the diagnosis of PE. Thirdly, the ECG can influence risk stratification. Because the ECG is neither sensitive nor specific for PE, it is not included as a separate component in the diagnostic pathway in the same way as a heart score, for example. The ECG is no substitute for risk stratification, and we shouldn't jump to CT imaging just because of an S1Q3T3. But a major contributor to both the Wells criteria and the years algorithm is the designation PE most likely diagnosis. This clinical gestalt is based on history, physical exam, and bedside tests. Just like patients with hypoxia and a normal chest X-ray increases our suspicion and contributes to how we score the patient by Wells or years, so too should patients with acute cardiorespiratory symptoms and multiple new ECG signs of acute RV strain. Finally, the ECG can influence empiric treatment. The vast majority of high pretest probability PE patients don't receive empiric heparin prior to imaging, including those who die in the ED while waiting for the CT scan. In those with RV strain, there is a risk of deterioration with delayed treatment, while the risk of one dose of empiric heparin is very, very low. Seeing ECG signs of RV strain in patients with a high pretest probability of PE should make us consider empiric heparin while awaiting imaging. So if you see a patient with acute cardiorespiratory symptoms and they have multiple signs of acute RV strain, including tachycardia, new right bundle branch block, anterior and inferior T-wave inversion, or S1Q3T3, consider the diagnosis of PE and how this might influence your initial management, differential diagnosis, pretest probability, and empiric treatment. I want to let you know that on the ECG Cases blog at the EM Cases website, we've got oodles of examples of ECGs of PE patients. We've got PE without RV strain, ones with RV strain without PE, and ECGs of PE with RV strain. So thank you so much, Jesse. Such great clinically applicable pearls of ECG findings for PE. Next up, we have the return of one of our all-star EM residents at the University of Toronto, Victoria Myers. She did such a great job with her last quick hit on bicarb and cardiac arrest that I invited her back to do another one. This time, it's on some tips on how to handle patch calls from EMS, with a special thanks to Dr. Morgan Hillier, who helped her with the content. Today, I'm going to be talking about cardiac arrest, the emergency physician's ultimate bread and butter. I'm not going to be talking about the codes that we run in the recess room, but the code that you might find yourself advising the medics on if you work in a hospital where you answer the patch phone. 
There is a whole subset of patients who have out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, which our skilled first responders treat, and we may only ever be involved over the phone. So imagine yourself working a busy shift and the patch phone rings. An advanced care paramedic is on the other line and they have a young patient in a PEA cardiac arrest. They've given three doses of epinephrine, intubated, and their end title is eight. They're looking for advice on what to do next. Should they give an amp of bicarb? Calcium? Should they transfer to hospital? Or should they terminate resuscitation? What else do you need to know to help make decisions about this patient's care? Briefly, know that the guidelines vary regionally, but medics have mandatory points for which they must call into the base hospital depending on the situation. In medical cardiac arrest, this is usually after a certain number of analyzes or epinephrines. This is different in trauma, but I'm going to just discuss medical arrests today. So when you pick up the phone, there are really two big things it boils down to. Is there something the paramedics can do on the scene beyond ACLS that you can give them direction on? To think about this, you need to think about what they have on their truck and what skills they have. When it comes to a medical cardiac arrest on their truck, they have epinephrine, amiodarone, lidocaine, calcium gluconate, normal saline, and then they also have glucagon, dopamine, and bicarb. They will have a defib, and if they have two trucks, they will have a second defib. They have airway equipment and the skills to intubate or place a superglottic airway. And this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it for emphasis. They are exceptionally skilled at providing excellent CPR with minimal pauses and compressions. Really the most important piece in a medical cardiac arrest. So that's number one. Whether there's something we can advise them on to do beyond ACLS that might change the outcome. Number two is if we transport this patient to hospital, what can we add with them in our resuscitation bay? In cardiac arrests, this boils down to a few things. We have the ability to lyse. We can get an advanced airway if it's not been established. If there's poor access, we can put an IO in or a central line. And we also have the ability to take a look with our ultrasound and perhaps do an advanced procedure like a pericardiosynthesis. So those are really the things that you can add that might change the patient's outcome if you transport them to hospital. So on the phone, when you're talking to paramedics, what are the quick and dirty pieces of information that you need to know to make your decision? Number one, you really want to know the age of the patient and any significant past medical history and a recent history within the last 24 hours. It might give you a sense of the etiology of the rest and what extra things you might be able to do. You also want to know when the patient was last seen well and if the arrest was witnessed or unwitnessed. And was there bystander CPR? You'll hear the phrases low flow and no flow time. No flow time being the possible time that the patient was down until CPR was started and low flow time being the amount of time CPR has been ongoing. These are important things to consider. Very importantly, you want to know if the patient has ever been in a shockable rhythm. We know that shockable rhythms have a significantly higher rate of survival to hospital discharge than non-shockable rhythms. And lastly, we don't think about this in hospital very often, but what's the end title and what's the trend? The Adult Advanced Life Support International Consensus Guidelines give a weak recommendation that an end title over 10 after intubation 
or over 20 after 20 minutes of CPR, may predict ROSC. The trend of the end title is particularly important. A jump up in end title or a deteriorating end title gives you a real sense of the clinical picture. And most importantly, don't forget to ask what the medics think. They are skilled providers who have field experience that we will never have. And often they're calling you with something in mind that they think they'd like to do that might change the outcome. There has been a lot of research into when it is appropriate to terminate a resuscitation. It is very reasonable to terminate a resuscitation if the arrest was not witnessed by the paramedics, if the rhythm was always non-shockable, and ROSC never occurred. These components come from a termination of resuscitation rule that was derived and validated by Dr. Rick Verbeek, Dr. Lori Morrison, and colleagues. It has a 99.5% predictive value in predicting death. If a patient meets all of these criteria, it is reasonable to stop the resuscitation because of futility. It's important to remember when considering termination of resuscitation that transporting a patient is not benign. There are resources involved, and most importantly, when paramedics drive lights and sirens to the hospital, they are putting both themselves and the public at risk of a motor vehicle accident. Now let's talk about some nuanced scenarios when you don't want to terminate resuscitation, but there might be something extra the paramedics can do on scene or while they're transporting. The first one being refractory VT or VF. In this situation, you can consider a vector change or dual sequential defibrillation. The evidence on this is still up and coming, although so far it looks promising and is probably worth trying while the paramedics transport. Another situation would be a very clear TCA overdose where you can advise bicarb if the QRS is widened. And lastly, a relatively common situation that we encounter is one of pseudo-PEA. If the patient is described as being in PEA with a high end title and a narrow rhythm, it's possible they're not in PEA at all, but a pseudo-PEA, where the pulse is not palpable because they are so profoundly hypotensive. This is important when thinking about your termination of resuscitation rule. This patient might meet all the criteria to terminate resuscitation. However, if you think they're in a pseudo-PEA and there's a background pulse that isn't palpable, you should transport to hospital. And finally, one last pearl that was given to me the other day that I think is amazing. Think about what your bystanders can do for you in a difficult situation. Sometimes patients are difficult to extricate and there is a pause in compressions because of space or personnel limitations. If there are a lot of bystanders, consider using them to help with CPR or help with transport to the truck. They can be a huge asset and potentially life-saving or life-changing in difficult situations. So to summarize, when you pick up the patch phone, the big two questions you're asking are, is there anything extra the paramedics can do on scene? And what will transporting to hospital add for this patient? Don't forget to think about your special scenarios and to consider pseudo-PEA. And most of all, ask the paramedics what they think. It's our teamwork with them that will lead to more saves. Talking about PEA arrest and pseudo-PEA, Rob Samard, the brilliant brain behind POCUS cases on the EM cases website, he's going to be at the EM cases summit November 11th to 13th, giving us his cutting edge approach to PEA arrest using POCUS pulse checks and beautifully explaining exactly how to differentiate PEA arrest from pseudo-PEA and all the nuances of what to do once you figure that out. It's going to be amazing. You can register at emcasesummit.com if you're not one of the 
about 400 people who have already registered. Next up, we have Britt Long give us a best of EM docs. This time it's on CT before LP. Lumbar puncture is the go-to test for meningitis. The problem with LP is that if it's not completed quickly before or shortly after antibiotics, it can be really difficult to obtain an organism on culture. And we also have the risk of brainstem herniation in patients with brain edema and increased ICP. Obviously, herniation is something we want to avoid, and obtaining a CT to look for mass effect before LP in every patient could be considered the safest approach. But this also has issues like radiation exposure and increased cost. Even more important is the potential delay in antibiotics with head CT before LP. In this quick hits episode, we're going to look at some of the evidence behind obtaining a CT before LP and the current recommendations. In 1938, a study proposed a mechanism by which LP could cause brainstem herniation in patients with intracranial masses and elevated ICP. In these patients with a mass lesion and elevated ICP, removing CSF could cause the brainstem to herniate. This study is important because it's really the first that suggests an association between LP and brainstem herniation. Several observational studies published in the 1920s to 1950s have also looked at outcomes in patients who are thought to have elevated ICP and underwent LP. These studies were conducted before imaging was readily available. They relied on clinical suspicion of tumor, papilledema, or autopsy. The risk of post-LP neurologic decline thought to be due to herniation ranged from 0 to about 6% in these studies. However, the time to neurologic decline ranged from 5 minutes all the way up to 24 hours. This timeline to clinical decline really calls into question the relationship of LP and herniation. Using these data to evaluate the risk of LP and herniation with mass effect is also challenging because CT just wasn't available at the time. Later studies in the 1990s suggest patients with meningitis are also at risk of herniation even in the setting of no intracranial mass. In these studies, rates of herniation range from 1 to 8%. Some of these patients had cerebral edema on imaging, but in many of these patients, imaging was completely normal. What about if we defer LP? While this seems like an easy decision, literature suggests the relationship of procedure and poor outcome just isn't clear-cut. Several patients from these studies in the 1990s and another in 2001 found herniation occurred before the LP was even performed. This means we're left with bacterial meningitis increasing the risk of herniation, but imaging may not be able to identify those at risk of herniation, and it isn't clear if deferring LP in those with cerebral edema can decrease the risk of herniation. There have been studies looking at decision rules to selectively image patients with clinical features associated with abnormalities found on CT. One study published in 1999 by Gopal et al. found altered mental status, focal neurologic abnormality, and papilledema could serve as a screening tool. If none of these were present, the negative likelihood ratio was zero with a positive likelihood ratio of 1.6, which isn't great. Clinical suspicion provided the same negative likelihood ratio with a much higher positive likelihood ratio of over 18. A later study by Hasbin et al. published in 2001 enrolled over 300 patients with suspected meningitis, regardless if they underwent CT or LP. 78% underwent CT, and authors used this group to derive their decision rule. They found age greater than 59 years, immunocompromised state, history of CNS disease, 
seizures in the past week, and a neurologic exam abnormality could predict an abnormal CT. If none of these criteria were present, the negative likelihood ratio was 0.1. However, neither of these studies have been validated, and specificity of this latter study was poor at about 50%, which means that CT could be overused. This study by Hasman, published in 2001, is the foundation for the IDSA guidelines, which recommend obtaining a CT before LP in patients who are immunocompromised, have a history of CNS disease, new-onset seizure, papilledema, altered mental status, or a focal neurologic deficit. Finally, no study has looked at decision rule impact on patient-centered outcomes. Performing a study evaluating decision rules against CT before LP and LP alone is difficult, and it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. The study from 1999 found two of three patients had positive CSF cultures, but they didn't receive antibiotics before the LP and CT. The study from 2001 found patients receiving head CT had to delay in antibiotics by about one hour. This is a big problem. A delay in antibiotics can increase the risk of mortality by about 30% per hour in patients with meningitis. Where does all this leave us? The best evidence suggests there's some association between LP and herniation in patients with intracranial mass effect lesions, but the risk is small. Meningitis is also associated with an increased risk of herniation in sick patients, even if imaging is normal. Current decision rules can provide some help, but they haven't been validated yet. At the end of the day, patients younger than 60 years, no immunocompromising state, no history of CNS disease, no seizure in the past week, and a normal neurologic exam, including mental status, have a very low likelihood of CT abnormality and herniation and can undergo LP. If you're thinking meningitis, give the patient antibiotics as soon as you can and get the LP. If you're going to obtain a CT, give the patient antibiotics before they go to imaging. Hopefully this gives you some background into some of the history and the present guidelines on when to obtain a CT before LP. And here's a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system that has made my life and the lives of my colleagues so much easier. Metricade can really help minimize the drawbacks of shift work we all know so well by not only ensuring equitable distribution of shifts, but also integrating circadian rhythm-friendly recovery time into their algorithms. They minimize my sleep deprivation, which allows me to be a better EM doc on shift. I can take better care of my patients and still have energy left after my shifts to enjoy other aspects of my life. Check out metricade.com slash EM cases for more details on how this awesome scheduling system works. And last but not least, we have the rebel himself, Salim Razei, giving us his lowdown on the Ketaban trial. In this month's Best of Rebel EM, we're going to talk about a new randomized clinical trial that just came out called the Ketaban trial. Now, it's interesting because intravenous subdissociative ketamine has gained an expanded role in the management of a variety of acute painful conditions in the emergency department. Now, when IV access is not readily available or unobtainable, Subdissociative dose ketamine can be given through the intranasal route as well, and I think many of us feel pretty comfortable with this. The authors of this trial were trying to give us yet another non-invasive route of ketamine administration, and that is through the nebulized route. So inhaled ketamine has a bioavailability of about 20 to 40% compared to the IV route. 
and a duration of action of about 20 to 40 minutes. And currently, there's no high-quality literature in the emergency department that evaluates or compares the analgesic efficacy and safety of nebulized ketamine. So in this randomized double-blind clinical trial, which, by the way, was published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine 2021, so just this year, the authors were basically trying to answer a simple question— What is the analgesic effectiveness and safety of nebulized ketamine at three different doses for emergency department patients presenting with acute and chronic painful conditions? They basically compared three doses of nebulized ketamine, 0.75 milligrams per kilogram versus one milligram per kilogram versus 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. All enrolled patients could receive up to three doses of nebulized ketamine for their pain control And then ketamine was given through a breath-actuated nebulizer, or BAN, which is where the authors got the name for the trial, the KETA-BAN trial. The primary outcome was a difference in pain scores on an 11-point numeric rating scale between all three groups at 30 minutes. And they had a couple of other secondary outcomes as well, which I'll get to when I'm talking about the results. In total, 120 patients were enrolled, 40 per group. These were adult patients presenting to the emergency department with some type of acute or chronic pain condition. And when we look at the difference in the mean pain scores at 30 minutes, the change in the pain score was similar among the three groups, with a mean value of 4.1. There was basically no difference between any of the dosing regimens. Now, 15 patients received rescue analgesia. Five of them received additional doses of nebulized ketamine. Ten received IV morphine. And then finally, there was no serious adverse events occurring in any of the groups. What was interesting is the overall occurrence of psychoperceptual effects were close to 25% at 30 minutes after nebulized ketamine. However, the proportions of subjects experiencing dizziness, fatigue were similar across all three groups. So a few thoughts on this study. So first of all, the authors demonstrated that the administration of inhaled ketamine resulted in a significant reduction in pain across all three dosing groups and provided short-term pain relief up to about 120 minutes. The main change in pain score at 30 minutes was four points and at 120 minutes was five points. Now, the big issues I have here is that there's no comparison to placebo or other active analgesics to see if inhaled ketamine is better but it's not really a weakness since this was what the authors didn't really set out to do. They were just trying to find what is the lowest dose we can use to be effective. The other issue I have is, is that no other analgesic medications were given as a first-line treatment. And I've got to say that ketamine is not my first-line agent for analgesia, but for study purposes, it makes sense why this was done in this manner. It'd be interesting to see how this works after we tried standard analgesic medications first. Now, two things I want to mention in addition to all this is that the occurrence of psychoperceptual effects, which is one of the big side effects of subdissociative ketamine, was only 25% in this study, which is significantly lower than what we've seen in the previous studies looking at subdissociative ketamine given through slow infusion. In those studies, it was about 54% compared to the IV push, which was 92%. So this is significantly less psychoperceptual effects. Now, this wasn't a direct comparison, and and we can't compare studies, but it's an interesting point to just kind of point out. 
The second thing I want to point out here is that in this trial, 10 out of 120 patients required opioid rescue analgesia. Again, this is lower than the total number of patients needing opioid rescue compared to IV subdissociative ketamine in trials done previously, which was 17 out of 90 patients. So again, we're seeing significantly lower, less need for rescue analgesia. Again, cannot compare different studies as the patient populations are most likely different and there's baseline differences. But again, just an interesting point. So what's the bottom line of this trial? Well, 0.75 milligrams per kilogram of nebulized ketamine through a breath-actuated nebulizer was both efficacious and safe in the control of acute pain in the ED. Additionally, when we compare this to previous evidence looking at IV subdissociative ketamine, there appears to be a signal of decreased levels of psychoperceptual effects and need for rescue analgesia. However, these last two findings well, they would need to be studied in a trial comparing nebulized versus IV ketamine. Well, there you have it. Please let me know what questions you have. And until next time. Wait, that's half of my sign-off. Let's try a Rebel-Anton combo sign-off, shall we? And until next time. Take it easy. Oh, and before I forget, spots are filling up for the virtual podcast camp December 2nd, 9th, and 16th, where Salim, Dr. Rizé, will be a special guest speaker. So just go to podcastcamp.org for more info.